Are you happy? Are you feeling content? Did you enjoy the durian today? Those who ate durian, give me a wave if you enjoyed the durian. I'm, I'm loving your culture. I'm, I'm just curious, mind you. Put your hand up if you love durian. Okay, put them down. Put your hand up if you hate durian. Wow. Well, we can minister to you later. Pray for you for, for deliverance from that. But uh, it was wonderful, wasn't it? And um, I was just kind of curious. You know, when we're talking about legacy, we're talking about who we are, what we build, what we do with our lives, what we pass on to the next generation. And certainly part of the legacy uh, is, you know, things in our culture, things the way we do our lives. And I'm just interested in watching today Angelina just teaching the little baby, I can't remember the little baby's name, how to eat durian. And uh, passing that legacy onto the next generation, the legacy of love for during. I think that's a wonderful thing to pass on to the next generation. Amen. And uh, no, that's good. But listen, when we're talking about building a legacy, what we're going to leave behind, what we're passing on to the next generation or leaving for the next generation, the impact that we're having with our lives, there's no greater story in scripture that comes to mind to me is the passing of the baton between Elijah and Elisha. And I want to talk about that story tonight. It's quite a, an interesting story. If I could just have this down a tad, that would be great. Um, amen. So we, we find Elisha first in 1 Kings chapter 19. Fold back down just a tad. 1 Kings chapter 19, Elisha is... A, okay, everyone's looking at them, so I'll just wait until we've sorted that out. <laughs> no pressure. It's all good. Oh, you got someone who comes and does that? It's all good. I'm just getting my ear blasted out up here on stage. So I'm good. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. God is good. Everyone do a jury and burp together. Ready? I'm sure we're going to get whiffs of jury and through the place tonight. It comes out, doesn't it? Whether you like it or not. Um, but never mind. Okay, thanks. Good. So we first find Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19. And Elisha is the son of a wealthy landowner. But he's not one of these kind of young rich kids who's got this sense of entitlement, who feels that he doesn't have to do anything with his life in order to obtain his future inheritance. But we find Elisha out in the field plowing along with the rest of the workmen in his father's field. He's sweating away out there in the hot day sun. And he's taken by surprise one day when the great prophet Elijah comes up and throws his mantle over him, which was probably a coat or a jacket, something similar to that. But when he threw that mantle over Elisha, it was symbolic that he was passing on to him his anointing. He was passing on to him his legacy, you could say. He was passing on what he was, what he carried to this next generation. And so Elisha, recognizing this, he went, said to Elijah, let me go and say goodbye to my mum and dad. So he went off, he said goodbye to his mum and dad, and then he came back. And he took his, his uh, yoke and his plow and smashed them to pieces and he made a fire. And then he took his oxen, he killed the oxen and he chopped them up into little pieces. And uh, um, just by the way, whoever's doing that, could you please not do that? That would be helpful. Just putting the scripture up there. 
because it's not exactly what I'm saying, and I'm just seeing everyone getting distracted trying to read it, and it's not really fitting. So if it'd be a little bit helpful, if you don't mind, um, it'll help me con- connect with you. So just follow me, that'll be easier. Okay, so thanks for trying, but that'll be good. Um, not, my, not my translation. But anyway, so here you have um, Elisha takes his oxen, he chops his oxen up in a little pieces, and then he cooks them up, and he gives his oxen all the cooked up oxen to his fellow workers. So you obviously get the impression that Elisha's not got any intention of going back to his secular employment or going back to what he was doing at the time when he had the sense of the call of God come upon his life. And so he went and he followed this great prophet Elijah and he worked alongside Elijah on the journey. And as they were going through the years, he was, he was basically uh, receiving, you could say, the anointing. He was, he was catching uh, the, the gift of the prophet from Elijah until the day came when Elijah was going to be taken up into heaven and there they are, Elijah, they're going from place to place. And it seems that Elijah's on a little bit of a mission that day. In fact, Elijah's going from, from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan. And when he goes from one place to the next place, each time he said to Elisha, you stay here, I am going to the next place. But Elisha kept on saying, oh no, as long as the Lord lives and as long as there's breath in your lungs, I'm sticking with you. Because Elisha now, being a prophet himself, knew that Elijah was going to be taken up to heaven that day. He didn't want to miss that great moment because there was something he wanted to receive from the great prophet before he went. And so they went from place to place until they eventually came to the Jordan River. And when they got to the Jordan River, Elijah took off his mantle and he struck the river. And the river split in two and they went across on dry ground to the other side. Pretty awesome. If you think about it, a flowing river, suddenly it's not flowing anymore and you walk through the gap. And when they're on the other side, the river closes back up and then they're walking along together. Then Elijah says to Elisha, mate, you've been hanging around with me like a bad smell all day. That's what he'd say if he was Australian, right? He didn't quite put it like that, but he said, Okay, listen, what is it that you want from me before I am taken from you? And then Elisha says, he has the audacity to say, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now you think this great prophet Elijah would say, Who do you think you are? I mean, he is the greatest, Elijah was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. And it's like Elisha's saying to him, You've got a great anointing but it's not good enough for me. I want twice what you have. And you'd think the prophet would say, who do you think you are, you little upstart? I mean, come on. But instead, he didn't rebuke him. He said to him, what you have asked for is a difficult thing. If you see me when I'm taken, it will be yours. Otherwise not. And in the very next verse, the chariot of fire comes sweeping down from heaven and goes right between them. So it was only a moment later and picked up Elijah and Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire in a whirlwind. Does anybody know anyone who was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind? My mum was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. True story. In my mum's funeral in 2007, we were in New Zealand in the, in the city of New Plymouth. We're in the church, going through the funeral proceeding. We're 
a little bit of noise going on outside. We weren't quite sure what it was. And uh, then we were hearing sirens. We were not quite sure what it was until the funeral was finished. And we went outside to discover a huge tornado had come in from the ocean and gone straight through the center of the city, picking up the roof off a huge big uh, uh, what do you call it, hardware store and going right through the middle of town on the street adjacent to the church and my mum went up to heaven in the whirlwind and I thought, good on your mum, you're awesome, amen? <laughs> you don't believe me, do you? <laughs> but anyway, so Elijah is being taken up to heaven in the whirlwind and as he's being taken up, Elisha shouts out at the top of his voice, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Apparently that's what you shout out if you ever see a great prophet taken up to heaven. Okay, No, but seriously, this is something we need to take note of. This statement that Elisha made. Because in Scripture, there is a law of first mention. When something is first mentioned in Scripture, you must look at the context and look what transpires and look what happens. And then when you find that in another portion of Scripture, you look at the context and you can, you can learn something from that. And, and so remember what Elisha cried out here. And we're going to look at that again later on. So he's crying out to Elisha and Elijah, sorry, and Elijah remembers that he said, if you see me when I'm gone, the anointing's yours. So he takes his mantle, drops it over the side of the chariot. It falls to the ground. Elisha takes off his mantle, rips it up, so I don't need this anymore, picks up Elijah's mantle and puts it on. Fits pretty good. He's walking off down to the river. He gets to the river and he goes, well, okay, let's give it a go. So he takes off the mantle. He says, where now is the God of Elijah? And he strikes the river. And right in front of him, the river splits in two, just as it did for Elijah. And then he walks across the river on dry ground. Pretty awesome. You know, when Elijah split the river, that's the seventh miracle recorded in Scripture that he performed. When Elisha struck the river, That's the first of 14 miracles recorded in Scripture that he performed. So symbolically, at least, he received his double portion in that time. So I want to actually have a look at three of Elisha's miracles here in Scripture. And it's interesting to note that Elisha in Scripture is a type of Christ. His name actually means, my God is salvation, which is very similar to the name Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. It all has pretty much the same meaning. And we also see that the miracles that Elisha performed, many of them paralleled with the miracles that Jesus performed. So here we have the first miracle I want to look at is found in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 to 7. And it's the story of the widow of one of Elisha's fellow prophets. The prophet had died. That's why the woman was now a widow. And some creditors had come because he had died in debt. And the creditors had come and they were demanding payment. In fact, they were, they were going to take her two sons and put them into forced slave labor in order to pay back the debt. So this is when Elisha comes onto the scene. And he asks the woman the question, what do you have in the house? And she says, oh, nothing but a flask of olive oil. It's a funny way to answer a question. What do you have? I have nothing but a flask, a little flask of olive oil. You know, sometimes 
we feel that we have nothing to offer God. But God's not interested in what you don't have. God's only interested in what you do have. And see, when you bring to God what you do have, then God's able to do something with that. He's able to give you what you don't have. Amen. You just got to put that in God's hands and let Him work with that. And it's interesting that this little flask, it was just an omer of oil, just enough for one anointing. That was all God needed. That was all that was needed for his great miracle. And so Elijah, sorry, Elisha said to the woman, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Shut yourself in your house and pour olive oil from your flask into the jars and fill them up. So they did exactly that. They went to all their neighbors. They borrowed jars and pots and filled their house with them. And then they started to pour out the oil. And they took this little flask and began to pour. And the little flask just kept pouring and filled up the first jug and kept on pouring. So they moved to the next one. It filled that right to the brim, went to the next one. And they've got a miracle unfolding right before their eyes. Pretty awesome if you were watching that happen. And then they're going around the room, filling up all of the, they'd be getting so excited. They'd be going, this is just amazing watching the miracle happen. And as they got closer and closer to the last jug, the woman says to one of her sons, quick, bring me another one. And the son replies, there is no other. Now that's what I would call one of those dope moments in Scripture. Have you ever seen Homer Simpson? When he makes a big mistake, it's like dope. It's like blew it. If I was there, I would have regretted that moment. I would have thought, oh no. Why didn't I get more flasks? Why didn't I get more jugs? Why didn't I get more pots? Why didn't I just go and tip out the fish tank, you know, fish out, tick out the fish bowls and bring them out? Why didn't I, why didn't I tip out the pot plants and bring those pots and tip out the, the bathtub, rip the bathtub out, come and bring it in and fill all that up? Just to get as much oil as possible, you know. But nevertheless, they filled up all these jugs. And then Elisha says, go and sell the oil that you have. Pay off your debt. And it was enough to pay off all the debt, but it was also enough to look after them, to take care of them for the rest of their lives. So it was a a great blessing from the Lord. But the question that I want to ask is this. Was that all that God had in mind or did God have more in mind? Was that the limit God put on them or did they put a limit on themselves in this moment? Because if we fast forward 800 years to when Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus women and children, you know the story, it started with the little boy's lunch, right? Here's the little boy in the crowd who's got five loaves and two fish. And the disciples, Jesus has sent into the crowd to try and find some food. He says, you feed them. He goes, they go looking for food and they find this little boy's lunch. And when they come back to Jesus, they say, oh, this is what we've got. You know, we've got this there's five loaves and two fish but what is this among so many so once again you find the disciples are overwhelmed by the little that they have to offer but the reality is when we bring to God what we do have God is able to do something with that isn't he he can do the impossible make the impossible possible we just give him what we have we just do what we can he gives us what we don't have and he does what we can't do amen So that was what happened in this situation. And so Jesus then, you know how he prayed a prayer and prayed grace. And he then distributed this stuff, the bread and the fish, to his disciples. Who then 
began to distribute it to the crowds. And as they broke it up and gave it to the crowds, the miracle was unfolding right in front of them to the point where everybody in this crowd, probably 20 plus thousand people, were fed full. And then the Bible says that they picked up 12 baskets full of food that was left over. So here there was a great abundance. Also the 4,000 I shared the other night. The second time Jesus did this miracle, there were seven baskets. There was an abundance. There was an overflow. So we find something is a little bit different when Jesus provides our needs. He doesn't just fill our vases to the full. He fills them to overflow. There's an abundance. There's more than we can contain. And when we go with that attitude, we come with that attitude towards God, knowing that it's not just about us. It's not just about having our needs met. See, some people get parked at that point. Some people just get stuck. It's like, if God looks after me, takes care of my needs, I'm fine, you know, and I'm happy, and I'll have a peaceful life. But it's not so much about that. It's about thinking beyond ourselves. And the more we think beyond ourselves, the more we think of being God's hands, of being God's feet, of how God can use us to reach out to others and bless others, God just keeps pouring it out. And He just keeps pouring it into us. And the more we pour it out, the more He pulls it in and it just keeps overflowing through our life. His abundant blessing toward us. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. God will generously provide all you need and you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. I love that principle of Scripture. It's awesome, eh? The other cool thing, though, that we find and learn from this miracle is that oil speaks in Scripture of the Holy Spirit. God will only stop pouring out His Holy Spirit when there are no more vessels thirsty to be filled. So I'm wondering tonight, how many vessels are thirsty to be filled with God's Holy Spirit in this place? Who are thirsty for more? See, because God pours it in and He doesn't just pull it to the brim. He pours it to overflowing. Amen. Because he wants us to be filled with, to overflowing, not just with blessing, but filled to overflowing with his spirit. Amen. So he just needs us to have that attitude of, Lord, we want more, understanding that it's not just about us. He wants to pour more into us so that he can pour more through us, so that he can touch the world around about us and we can touch even the next generation beyond us. Amen. So how many people are thirsty for more of God? Give me a wave tonight. Amen. That's great. Thank you, Lord. You know, uh, I shared the other night how I was 16 years of age when I got first baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then God began to use me to pray for others to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it just started with one and then it started preaching in churches and youth groups. And, you know, you might have 20, 30, 50 people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. Some bigger churches, two, 300 people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. Or in the crowds we have in Africa, sometimes the whole field of people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it's just awesome, God pouring His Spirit out. But when you're ministering and doing this kind of ministry or whatever you are, however you're being God's hands and feet, when you're pouring your life out, when, you're, when you've just got this passion to bless the next generation, to bless those around about you, to, to, to show the world the love of God in all sorts of different ways, as you just keep living and pouring it out, it's like there's times you need to soak it up. Amen. Just have a, a refreshing. It's not that we run out of the Holy Spirit, so to speak, but it's more that we just, we just it's a good thing to keep 
being refreshed. It's a good thing to keep getting topped up. And I'm a real believer in impartation. Amen. And if there's somebody out there who's doing something that I'm not doing, or God is using them in the way that I'm not being used, I'm so I'm like, come and lay your hands on me. Come and pray for me. Come and impart to me something that you have. I want something of your spirit, so to speak. And uh, so the great men of God, like Reinhard Bonnke particularly, Benny Hinn, I also mentioned, other revivalists and evangelists, I've got them to lay hands on me and pray for me because I want to catch something from them. And uh, in 2017, I had the privilege of being invited by Reinhard Bonnke. I was one of 40 evangelists again from around the world who were invited to come to Lagos, Nigeria to his final farewell crusade. And uh, it was an awesome experience. I went along there and uh, there was, there was uh, 1.7 million people gathered over the five days. So it was quite, a, quite an exciting event. On the last day, there was, uh, oh, sorry, over the five days, there was 845,000 recorded decisions for Jesus. So it was a pretty big event. But one of the most exciting things and one of the main reasons why I went there, because he was talking about the passing of the flaming torch. And if you know much about his ministry, I've shared a little bit about it, having seen 78.5 million people saved now. Uh, He's talking about the passing of this evangelistic anointing or passing of this healing anointing, this this passion, something that he had. And uh, of course... Daniel Kalenda, who's now the director of the ministry and the main evangelist for the ministry, was the one who he passed that mantle to. But also there was the the passing of the torch, the passing of the fire to those of us he invited to come and the pastors that were there gathered that day in a a particular pastor's conference. And so it was very exciting just to, to receive something from the Lord, you know, a fresh impartation, a fresh fire from the Lord through the prayers of this man. I've had him lay hands on me three times and that, that impartation as well. And I found even though God's used me around the world to see tens of thousands of people come to the Lord and uh, going into churches and seeing good numbers of people saved, I saw God shift something in my ministry. I saw a fresh fire come on me. There was a new urgency came into my spirit. And I actually, when I went from that crusade to New Zealand in in November of that year, and I was preaching in New Zealand, I scared my preaching. It was just like the power of God, the fire of God that was on me. And uh, just seeing so many people responding to the Lord in, in, in new ways since that time. And so I'm kind of curious, actually, where I've been going. We're going to Brazil, these pastors' conferences. We've got 900 pastors, 1,200 pastors, 300 pastors over here, big churches and all that. And I've been passing on this anointing that has been passed on to me. I've said, okay, well, if I could receive a flaming torch through prayer, I'm going to pass on a flaming torch through prayer to as many who want to receive that flaming torch. So I'm curious today, how many people here would like to receive the flaming torch? Give me a wave. You'd like to receive that that anointing. Well, we're going to pray later on tonight uh, for an impartation of that, for you to receive that as well, which would be really good. Amen. The second miracle I want to look at is Elisha's 14th miracle. Now, both Jesus and Elisha raised both men and, uh, you know, adults and children from the dead during their ministry. There's the time, of course, when 
Jesus was so moved by the death of a widow's only son, who was a grown son, but nevertheless an only son, who in that culture would be taking care of the widow, but he died, so now the widow's left in a predicament. Jesus saw this, realized, and so he stopped the funeral, partway through the funeral march, put his hand on the coffin and just said to the, to the, the young man in the coffin, sit up, get up. And he sits up, raised from the dead. He gives him back to the mother. It's a pretty awesome story. Amen. But the greatest resurrection miracle, other than his own, of course, was Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus. A Lazarus who was a friend of Jesus. And Mary and Martha, his sisters, they hung out together. So they were all good friends. But Jesus happened to be in, a, in another town and he was ministering in another town when Lazarus fell sick and he fell very sick. So Mary and Martha sent a message to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, your mate Lazarus, he's, he's really sick. Come and pray for him, raise him up. But Jesus deliberately stayed where he was for a few more days until Lazarus died. And then Jesus said to his disciples, guys, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples said, oh, that's good, eh? If he has a nice sleep, he's going to get better. He's going to get over his illness. And Jesus said, sorry, guys, not that kind of sleep. Lazarus has died. But I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to raise him up. Now, that's a funny thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? Jesus was happy one of his best mates had died. Because then he goes on to say this. Because now you are going to get an opportunity to see me glorified. Though he went back to that town where Lazarus had died. When he arrived at the town, both Mary and Martha came to Jesus and they said to Jesus, Oh Lord, if only you were here, Lazarus would not have died. And Jesus says, If only you believe I am the resurrection and the life. Take me to where you laid him. So, of course, they take Jesus to the grave, to the, to, the, to the cemetery where there's the tomb. And Jesus says, roll away the stone. They said, but Lord, he stinketh. That's the King James, King James translation. He stinketh. It's the only thing they thought that was going to come out of that tomb that day was a bad smell. But Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And you know why Jesus said, Lazarus? Come forth, don't you? Because if Jesus just said, come forth, every dead body in the cemetery that day would have jumped up and came out. They would have said, it's got to be me. It's got to be me. I'm coming, you know. But it was Lazarus. He spoke to Lazarus and Lazarus came out of that grave that day, dressed in his grave clothes. I'm not quite sure how he did it because he was wrapped up a bit like a mummy and he hopped up and he bounced out and got to the front. And so Jesus said, okay, unwrap him, let him go. Pretty awesome miracle. You know, but there are times in our life where we feel a little bit like Mary and Martha, where we, where we wonder what's happened. And come on, we asked Jesus to help and he didn't seem to help. It's like, did he forget about us? He didn't want to answer our prayer. We feel like it's too late. We've been forgotten. But how many people know God never forgets? It's never too late. God knows when and how to answer our prayer. And when God answers our prayer, we receive the greatest miracle and He receives the greatest glory. Can you say amen to that? Now, I want to have a look at, oh, let me tell you a story first of all. On, on the 12th, sorry, the 2nd of December 2001, 
Reinhard Bonnke was opening a 12,000-seat church auditorium in a city called Anitsha in Nigeria. Now, there was a woman by the name of Nanika Ikatruku. Can you say that one? Nanika Ikatruku, she brought her husband, Pastor Daniel, to the meeting. The only problem was that her husband, Pastor Daniel, had been killed in a car accident three days before. He'd spent two nights in a morgue. He had been partially embalmed. He wasn't just dead. He was dead, cold, stiff, embalmed, dead, right? And she brought him to the meeting, believing that the anointing in that meeting would raise her husband from the dead. It's a great wife to have, guys, when you die. Amen. A woman with that kind of faith. I'm glad I've got a wife who's a woman of faith and an intercessor. I mean, she's not going to let me stay dead either, are you? All right. But anyway, so she brought this man to the meeting. And of course, people think she's crazy. She's got this dead, stiff body in the back of her car. And the guards even tried to beat her and stop her taking it into the church. She eventually persuaded them. They let her take the body into the place, but not actually into the main auditorium. She was allowed to take the body into the basement of the building, where they laid the body out on a table, and a few people gathered around while the meeting was going on upstairs, and they came around and they laid their hands on this dead, cold, embalmed, stiff body. And to everybody's shock and horror, he started to breathe. And so they're freaking out. They start rubbing his arms and legs because he was so cold, just trying to help his body warm back up again. And after a period of time, he eventually sat up. He was a little groggy to start with, and, but then he kind of came to it and he was fine. He was 100%, no brain damage, nothing after being cold, dead, stiff, embalmed for three days. How awesome is that? And when I was in Nigeria in 2017... On the bus going to the crusade was Pastor Daniel in the bus with me. Pretty cool, eh? So I was in the bus with a man who'd been dead three days. So it's pretty awesome. So, but I want to share with you uh, the second resurrection that Elisha performed. The crazy thing about this resurrection is that Elisha performed this resurrection when he was dead himself. The story is found in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 20. The Bible says, then Elisha died and was buried. It goes on to say that Moabite raiders would come and raid the land of Israel every spring. What else do you do when you're a Moabite raider? You come and raid the land of Israel every spring. And so there were some men that were carrying out a funeral procession. And they were carrying a body through the cemetery. And as they were carrying the body through the cemetery, they looked up and they spotted the Moabite raiders coming, storming over the hill. They had a split-second decision to make. Do we continue with this funeral, bury this man as the Moabite raiders come and kill us all, and then they'll have to bury us as well? Or, B, do we throw the body in the nearest tomb and get the heck out of here? They thought B was a good option. Who else thinks B would have been a good option at that moment? And so they thought, let's throw this body in the nearest tomb. And it just so happened, the nearest tomb was the tomb of Elisha. Now, it's really interesting. This one's got me thinking. Because the tombs that people were buried in in those days were stone sepulchers. All right? They were like big square or big rectangular boxes about 100 millimeters 
square sides, you know, made carved out of stone. And they'd have a big slab on the top, 100 mils, 4 inches, for those old school people, sitting on the top of that, which weighed probably a few hundred kilograms, this big slab of stone. Now, if you are in a hurry to run for your life, and you want to dump a body somewhere, I'm not sure if you're going to go to all of the trouble of moving a big heavy stone off the top of someone else's grave in order to drop that body in there. You'd probably just biff it nearby, wouldn't you? Perhaps Elisha's tomb was already partially open. Why would Elisha's tomb have been partially open? Well, I thought about this. Elisha was in the habit of raising people from the dead during his ministry. Perhaps those that buried Elisha thought, what if Elisha raises from the dead and his tomb's sealed? He's going to suffocate and die. He won't be able to get out and he'll just die again. That Nobody will know. It would be real tragic, wouldn't it? So they thought, what if we leave his tomb just a little bit open so if he raises from the dead, he can crawl out? I don't know. I'm just making that all up. But it sounds good, doesn't it? The point was... Somehow, whether they pushed that tomb open or whether that tomb was already partially open, they took this dead body and they just biffed it into the tomb. And then they turned and they ran for their life. And as they were running, this body fell down into the tomb and hit the bones of Elisha. And when the body hit Elisha's bones, life came into that body. The man jumped up out of the tomb and he yelled out to his mates, hey guys, wait for me. And that's when the first four minute mile was actually broken. I mean, I got to tell you, those guys, they ran fast right there. All right. It was a pretty awesome story. And we look at that and we think, wow, what an incredible anointing that Elisha had. It was so amazing, so powerful, that it was still resident in his bones when he died. But I believe that this is one of the great tragedies of Scripture. What was Elisha's anointing doing in his bones? Why wasn't Elisha's anointing passed on to his successor in the same way that Elijah's anointing was passed on to him? Why wasn't the legacy passed on down the line? What happened to it? Why did it get stuck with Elisha? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because we're going to have a look at one more miracle. And the third miracle is the healing of Naaman, the leper. Naaman was the commander of the army of Aram. Now, Aram was another nation near Israel, that constantly came in and raided and raped and pillaged the nation of Israel. And here you have this leader of the army, Naaman, contracts leprosy. But on one of their raids, he'd captured an Israeli girl, and this Israeli girl was serving in his house. And so when he contracted leprosy, She said, oh, if only my master went and saw the prophet in Israel, you could be healed of your leprosy. So Naaman had a little bit of a predicament. The only way he could receive healing was to go back into the nation that he was constantly raiding and pillaging and murdering people. And so, of course, he he thought he'd better go through all the right kind of channels and the right protocol and everything. So he got a great gift together. In fact, he got a huge gift together. He got, he got together, uh, how much? 750 pounds of silver, which 
in Malaysian ringgit is about 750,000 Malaysian ringgit worth of silver and then 150 pounds of gold which is about 12 million Malaysian ringgit worth of gold and then 10 Amani suits and he took this gold and silver and these Amani suits and before he went to Israel he went to his king and he got a letter from the king of Aram it was a letter of introduction and he took this letter and he went straight to Israel with a great entourage. So he wasn't going by himself because he didn't want to get his head chopped off. So he would have had a great entourage with him, people carrying all the gold and silver, soldiers around protecting them as they came. And when they got to Israel, they went to the king of Israel. And Naaman gave the letter to the king of Israel. And the letter said this, With this letter I present to you my servant Naaman, I want you to heal him of his leprosy. You could understand at that moment the king of Israel freaking out. It's like, what are you talking about? I can't heal anyone of leprosy. He thought this is a Trojan horse. This is a plot just to get in here and he's going to attack us again, you know. Excuse me. But of course word gets out what the real story is. And he sent to the house of Elisha. Now, Elisha does not even come out of his house. What Elisha does is he sends his servant, Gehazi, the one who could be his successor, Gehazi, he sends him out of the house with instructions to give to Naaman. And the instructions are quite simple. Go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed of your leprosy. Now, Naaman actually gets mad. He gets angry because he thought Elisha was going to come out of the place, wave his hands around, invoke the name of his God and do all his hoo-ha in order to heal him, right? And let me just pause for a moment to say something here. When it comes to praying for the sick, you know, we prayed for you. We laid hands on your hands the other day, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes you think, well, well, what do I do? Well, just get your hands on people. And pray for them. You think, well, what do I pray? You know, I, I teach people how to pray for the sick and all that. But what I've discovered, it's not so much a matter of the exact method that you use. It's more important who you're praying to and who you have faith in. And how much faith you put in him to answer your prayer. When you've got the faith and when you've got the right person involved in the mix, you can get everything else pretty much all wrong. I mean, I've seen people pray the wrongest prayers that you could possibly pray, but they've got simple faith that Jesus is going to heal them and, and, or heal somebody, and Jesus heals them. So it's not got to be all this rah-rah and everything like that, right? But anyway, so Naaman's all ticked off about that, but his people say to him, listen, if he had asked you to do something difficult, you would have done that. He's asked you to do something simple, so just do it. So he goes, he dips in the Jordan River seven times. When he pops up out of the Jordan River, he's completely healed of his leprosy. So he comes back to Elisha's house and he tries to give Elisha all of this gold, all of this silver, all of this clothes. And Elisha doesn't want a bar of it. He doesn't want a bar of silver. He doesn't want a bar of gold. He doesn't want any suits. He doesn't want nothing. 
Just get out of here. Why? Because he's a prophet. He knows what Naaman's already done. He knows that because Naaman's received his healing from leprosy, he wasn't going to be a good guy from then on. He was going to continue to come back in and lead his army back in to rape and pillage and murder the people of Israel. So Elisha did not want to have any kind of connection with him, didn't want to receive anything from him. Just told him, get on your bike and go. So Naaman goes off, takes all his stuff, away he goes. And this is where the story turns tragic. It takes a tragic twist. Gehazi, who had experienced incredible miracles, watching Elisha pray for the sick, watching Elisha perform multiplication miracles, watching Elisha even raise the dead, seeing supernatural deliverance from armies. I mean, he'd seen the works. He could have been catching all of this in his spirit from this great prophet Elisha. But instead, in that moment, he took his eyes off the glory of God and he put his eyes onto Naaman's gold. And he just thought, I've got to have that. And so he got up, he, he worked up a bit of a story. And, and the story he came up with, he snuck out from Elisha. And the story he came up with when he got to, to Naaman, he said, look, just after you left, two prophets turned up. And Elisha has asked me to come and ask you if you could give us two sets of clothes. And if you could give us 75 pounds of silver, which is, you know, uh, in fact, he says, no, listen, let me give you 150 pounds of silver which is about, you know, 150,000 Malaysian ringgit of silver. And so he takes it and he gets some, some friends, some, some soldiers to help carry it. And they take it back. They put it in Gehazi's tent. Gehazi covers it all up and hides it. And then he comes and he presents himself back to the prophet, his master, Elisha. And Elisha says to Gehazi, Where have you been, Gehazi? And Gehazi says, Oh, I've been nowhere. Elisha says, Hmm, wasn't my spirit with you when Naaman got down off his chariot? You could imagine Gehazi's blood run cold at that moment. Gehazi had been busted. He thought he could sneak out, just get a little bit of plunder, and, and it's all good. Nobody's going to know. But you don't lie to a prophet. I mean, prophets hear from God, right? Prophets are called seers. They see. They've got open, open visions and all sorts of things. And you don't try lying to a prophet because they can tell you the truth anyway, exactly what happened here. In fact, Elisha was telling the king of Israel what the king of Aram was plotting to do in, our, in, in attacks on Israel. So they were able to see these incredible things. And so he sees and he, and he saw what transpired. And then he pronounces judgment over Gehazi. He says, look, it's not the time to be chasing after all of this gold and silver of Naaman because you've done that. You're also going to get Naaman's leprosy. And not only are you going to get Naaman's leprosy, but you're going to pass on Naaman's leprosy to your children and to your children's children. What an absolute tragedy. Here is someone who had the potential of receiving Elisha's anointing. 
He could have received Elisha's anointing in a double portion. He could have received Elijah's anointing in a double portion. He could have become the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. But instead, what happens? Because he got his heart in the wrong place and he got his eyes on the wrong thing, he received leprosy. And leprosy was what he passed on to the generations after him. So I've got some questions for you tonight. What is your vision? What is your vision? What is it that you really want in life? What's got your heart? What are you going after? What do you kind of feel that you need? What is the most important thing to you in your life? You know, the Bible says that God knows exactly what we need even before we ask. He is our provider. And and as I've shared already, and we know that He is not just our provider, He's a generous provider. He provides all of our needs. He provides it in abundance. We will never lack if we seek Him. And in fact, the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. Because the sad thing is, so many people get seeking the stuff and they get caught up in the stuff and they lose out on what God's got planned for their life. The actual proper legacy that God wanted them to leave gets lost. But when we go after the kingdom of God, when our heart is for God's kingdom and for His purposes, God provides all these other things. He, he looks after us and He looks after us very, very well. Amen. It's good to know that we've got a God who heals the sick. Now we saw Elisha healing Naaman the leper, healed many others as well. Jesus, we know, healed many people. He healed lepers. He healed 10 lepers at one point. I told you that story. He healed one leper who came to him one day, said to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, sorry, mate. I'm not healing lepers today. No, he didn't say that, did he? What did Jesus say? Jesus just said, I'm willing. Be clean. Be cleansed. How many people know he's always willing? He's always willing to heal us. He's always willing to cleanse us. He wants us to be whole. Amen. He'll heal us of our diseases. He's willing. In in fact, sometimes it's more a matter of whether we are willing to, to receive the healing, whether we are really willing to reach out, to push in, to take hold of what he's got for us. Sometimes we need to pay the price to receive what he's got for us. Are we willing to do that? The interesting thing here in Scripture is that leprosy doesn't just represent sickness in Scripture. Leprosy, leprosy is also a type of sin. See, God doesn't just want to cleanse us from all of our diseases. He wants to cleanse us and primarily wants to cleanse us from all of our sins. Because it's our sins that separate us from God. It's our sins that separate us from His presence, that separate us from His plans and purposes. It's our sin that will separate us from God for eternity. Amen. And that's why Jesus came. You know the story. Jesus came, died on the cross to take our sin upon himself, to reconnect us to God. God wanted to deal with the sin factor because the sin factor messes our lives up. The sin factor robs us of God's plans and purposes. The sin factor will put a a stop in our life. It will cause us to be passing the wrong things on to the next generation. We'll miss out on receiving all that God's got for us and we'll miss out on passing on all that God has got for us if we get stuck in the sin factor. So the Lord would have us to be cleansed. He'd have us to repent of our sin, to turn away from our sin 
and to seek first his kingdom, to go after him with a whole heart, not a half heart. We go after God with a half heart, we give the enemy room in our life. We go after God with a whole heart, then God's able to do so much in us and through us and bless us the way he intends to do that. Amen? So, we don't want to go to the grave still in our sin. Amen? And it's too many people have been derailed and distracted, and it's a sad thing. Derailed and distracted from God's purposes. And those that end up in a Christless eternity. We don't want to be derailed. We don't want to be distracted. We don't want to go to the grave in our sin. But we also don't need to go to the grave needing a miracle. When we've got a God who's a miracle-working God. When we've got a Savior who's a miracle-working Savior. Okay, admittedly, everybody's going to die of something one day. But sadly, some people die too soon. Some people die outside of their time frame. Some people die, I believe, outside the will of God. There are those that God takes in a situation that happens and then turns it out for His glory as He does. All things work together for good. For those who love them are called according to His purposes. And when tragedies do happen in our lives, how many people know God wraps that up in His grace, He works it all in and brings an incredible plan out of that. But you know, we've got a God who's a healer. Amen. And as you know, I've already shared, I've had the great joy of praying for thousands of people around the world and seeing countless healings, seeing God heal many, many people of many, many things. And, uh, you know, before we go, if you haven't received prayer already for healing and you still are sick in your body, or perhaps you've even received a prayer, but you're not fully recovered yet, we're still happy to pray for you. While we're still here, we're happy to continue to pray and uh, lay hands on people and pray for people. And even tonight, uh, we'll do that very thing. We want to pray for anybody who's sick in this place who has not yet received prayer. And also, I want to give opportunity to all of those of you who want to lay hands on people and see them healed to help us pray and uh, just get that flowing in your life. Take every opportunity. If we can't get that rolling in the church, we won't get it rolling out there, right? Amen. So this is the best place to start practicing, uh, particularly on church camp when we're all soaked in the presence of God. Amen. All having great devotions and prayer times and everything and lots of durian. Amen. main thing that I'm sort of touching on here is whether or not we want all that God's got for us. Whether or not we're hungry for God. Are we, are we thirsty for God? Are we, those, are we those vessels that want to be filled to overflowing? Are we, are we like a room full of vessels today just saying, yes, Lord, I want to receive all that you will impart into my life so that you can pour it out through me. I'm not going to let it get blocked here. I'm not going to let it get blocked by my selfishness or by my greed or just by thinking about myself. But I want to think about the next generation. I want to think about what I am passing on. I want to think about what I am leaving for the generations to come. I want you to do a complete work in me. I want you to do what you can do in me so what I pass on doesn't hurt the next, next generation, but it helps the next generation. We may have been hurt. If we've been hurt on the journey and we don't deal with that hurt, then we're going to pass on hurt to the next generation. But if we deal with that, then we're going to pass on blessing to the next generation. Amen. And it's really important in that. But I want to finish with a story. And this is, this is pretty awesome. Maybe if I could have the musicians come. And this is found in 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13. When Elisha was on his deathbed. King Jehoash, the king of Israel, came to visit 
Elisha. Guess what he said when he walked into the room and he saw Elisha on his deathbed. Jehoash says, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Hello. Here's the statement again. It's only used twice in Scripture. The first time the statement was used, what happened? It was a moment when a great prophet was passing from earth into eternity. It was a moment when heaven was open to receive that prophet. But when heaven was open to receive that prophet, heaven was open for a blessing to be released to whoever was there to receive it. And we know in that first situation, Elisha was there to receive the blessing. And Elisha received a double portion as Elijah went up to heaven. Now this time when Elisha himself is dying and Jehoash is there to be the recipient, heaven is open to receive Elisha. What is Jehoash about to receive? He has the potential right now to receive a double portion of Elisha's anointing. He's, he's, he's sitting in a place where he could get a great blessing from heaven. What happens? Elisha says to Jehoash, quick, grab some arrows and a bow. Come over here. Let me lay my hands on your hands. So Elisha lays his hands on Jehoash's hands. Then he says to Jehoash, go and open that east window. And shoot an arrow out the window. This is going to be your arrow of victory over the army of Aram. Remember Aram? That's the army of Naaman. Naaman got healed. He went back and he's continued to raid and rape and pillage the nation of Israel. And so Elisha's saying, you've got to deal with this. And this is your arrow of victory. Shoot it out the window. So he shot the arrow out the window. And then Elisha says to, to, to um, Jehoash, take the rest of the arrows and strike them on the ground. And Jehoash takes the arrows and he goes, tap, tap, tap. Elisha got mad. Elisha says, what did you do that for? Why did you only tap the ground three times? Now you're only going to have three victories over a ram. You should have at least tapped the ground five or six times and then you have completely destroyed your enemy. What is he saying? He's saying this, you cannot receive a double portion anointing with a half-hearted prayer. In fact, sometimes you will not even receive a full blessing with a half-hearted prayer. Now, you don't want to have a half a blessing. You don't want to have your, half, your cup half full. You don't want to have your, your body half healed. You don't want to have a half a breakthrough in your life. Amen. You want to have it full, don't you? You want to have all that God's got for you. You want to receive that healing. You want to receive that blessing. You want to receive that breakthrough. You want to see your family saved. Can you say amen? And more than that, you want to go beyond that. You want to have a double portion. Give me a wave tonight if you'd like to have a double portion. You want to receive everything that God's got. Why don't you stand up to your feet? Because I want you to show God something tonight. I want you to show God that you are thirsty for Him. I want you to show God that you are hungry for Him. I experienced something today that just opened my eyes and amazed me. I watched half of you people eating durian with a passion. 
going after durian because you were hungry for durian, just like I was hungry for durian. Amen. And nothing was going to stop you. You were excited eating that durian because durian satisfies you. You want more durian. How many people want more durian? Come on, we do. We always want more durian, don't we? There's never enough durian. We just want to go and have more and more. And I just want to see, you're hungry for durian. Are you hungry for God? Are you thirsty? Do you want your cup filled? Do you want your cup overflowing? Do you want a double portion? Do you want that miracle that God's got? Get out of your seat and come to the front right now. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. You show God that you're hungry. You show God that you want the first mouthful. You show God that you want to drink before everyone else drinks. You say, hey God, I want you. I want more of you. I don't want to miss out. I don't want to have a half cup. I don't want to have a half a miracle. I don't want to have a half a healing. I don't want to have a half a blessing. I don't want only half of my family saved. I want my whole family saved. I don't want to leave a pathetic legacy. I don't want to leave a small inheritance. I don't want to leave something bad for the generations to come. I want to receive and I want to impart and leave a great blessing for the generations that come after me. Hallelujah. Shikarabusa. Oh, shakarabusa. Oh, shakarabusa. Shukabasa. Come on, I want you to just start reaching out to heaven. Just start reaching out to heaven. God is in this place tonight. And He's in this place tonight because He wants to impart to you all that you want to receive from Him. But you've got to show Him that you want to receive it. You're not going to receive a double portion with a half-hearted reaching out to God. You know, it's, it's not like this. It's not like, oh, this sounds nice. I think I better go out because everyone else is going out. No, it's not. Oh, okay. If, if you're passing out blessings, oh, all right, then I'll receive a blessing if you give it to me. No, it's not that kind of attitude. The Bible says heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That means you've got to be passionate. You've got to be aggressive. You've got to go after God with everything that's within you. Can you say that? amen to that? I was preaching in England and there was a woman in a meeting and, and she was sick in her body. In fact, she had smashed her knee and, and she had been uh, had knee trouble for years and she, she was on uh, benefits and all that sort of stuff. She couldn't work anymore and, and she was in a lot of pain and she was in the meeting and, and we were talking like this, you know, how are you going to do it? Are you, gonna, are you just going to tap the ground? once or twice because that's what some of us do we come out we pray once we pray twice oh doesn't seem like God wants to answer my prayer no the Bible says knock and keep on knocking it says ask and keep on asking and then the door will be open and then you will receive what you ask for it's have this attitude don't give up keep on going in fact, I was talking to this church. I said, listen, if you, if you want to dance for your miracle, you dance for your miracle. In fact, I heard someone preach this one time and I got it in my spirit. And I started dancing for my miracle. I mean, I started for about an hour. I was jumping around all over the place and I got all sweaty and everything. It was just like breaking through. I thought, I'm going to do something I've not done before. I'm going to get out of my, my little comfort zone. I'm going to get out of my little passivity. I'm going to get out of my little patheticness and I'm going to get serious about seeking God. And I started to do it and God just broke through in my life. And then I watched this woman in a meeting who had a, had a leg that was like swollen. It was black. It was painful. And she just got up and started jumping on it. She just started jumping on that thing. She said, I'm not settling for this. I'm believing God. I'm believing God. And she started jumping and the swelling went away and the blackness went away and the pain went away. Awesome. Hallelujah. 
So I want to encourage you. We're going to reach out to heaven and heaven's going to come down. But you're going to get as much heaven as you go after tonight. You're going to receive according to the way that you go after God. So I'm encouraging you. Heaven is open. Heaven is open tonight. God wants to pour out a blessing. He wants to bless you. You're not here in this camp just to eat durian. You're not here in this camp just to eat food. You're not here just to socialize. You're here because God wants to impart something into your life. God wants to change you. God wants to build you. God wants to build you so that you got something amazing in your life to pass on to the next generations. Amen. So come on, why don't we reach out? Why don't we cry out? Come on, let's let's lift our voices. Let's begin shouting out to God. Let's say, God, pick me. God, hear my cry. Don't pass me by. Don't pass me by. Don't pass me by. Lord, I'm crying out to you. Holy Spirit, come on.